Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. And I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we're just going to jump right into Second Peter and keep going. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be a part of this church. Lord, I thank you for the teaching of Pastor Steve, Lord, even this morning, reminding us of our need to learn to trust you and to place our dependence upon you and not anything in the world. And, and Lord, as we study here the words of Second Peter today, Lord, there's going to be a, a brief overlap because of warnings you give. Lord, you want us to be holy as you are holy, and, and this world that shakes its fist at you and rebels against you will one day be held to account. But Lord, until then, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have not destroyed everything. Lord, we have every one of us unsaved family members that we desperately want to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We thank you that you're holding back judgment because of your desire for more people to repent and believe. So help us to be faithful. Help us to stand firm. And in the midst of an evil and dying world, help us, Lord, to trust you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in Second Peter chapter 2, and we're in the midst of a section that's taken me a little bit longer than I expected, that is at the beginning of chapter 2, is verses 4 through the first part of verse 10. And we've spent the last couple of weeks going through this, and really in chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is bearing down on the danger of false teachers. And one of the dangers of false teachers that he alludes to in the first three verses is that they live immoral lives. They're greedy, they want money, type of thing Pastor Steve even alluded to this morning, of people wanting more money. But they were characterized by immorality. In fact, as I've been reading ahead, the rest of the chapter, beyond the verses that we're actually studying right now, is describing the sinfulness of those teachers. It's a wicked world, it's getting worse, and the false teachers that Peter was describing would fit in well in American society. They're sexually immoral. They're, they're motivated by money. And so Peter wants to encourage the church. Certainly, he wants them to have their eyes open. He wants them to be alert. He wants them to know what a false teacher looks like and what to be weary of. But he also wants to give them hope because I'm sure in their day, it's kind of like our day, it looks like evil is winning. All around us, people aren't celebrating righteousness, they're celebrating sin. They're cheering sin. It seems like politicians are tripping over themselves to be the first to embrace some new perversion in the interest of grabbing a few votes and being patted on the back. And that influence out there winds up working its way into the church through false teachers who disguise themselves and they come in and deceive. And so Peter was giving this warning about false teachers, but then he's reminding the church false teachers will be dealt with by God. If they don't repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ, God will take care of the evil. And he does this, Peter gives this encouragement by pointing to some historical examples of how God responded in evil times. And he's using those examples to encourage the believers, as we'll see when we eventually get to verses 9 and 10. He's encouraging believers that just as God dealt with evil then, he'll deal with evil now. And just as God rescued the righteous then, he'll rescue the righteous now. 
So the hope for us is that even in a fallen world, an evil, sin-filled world, God will take care of His children and God will deal with the wicked. So I'm going to read again our verses. Follow along. I'm reading them from verse 4 to the middle of verse 10. The, the chapter division in verse 10, which are added after the Scriptures were written, could have been added at a different place. But from verse 4 to 10a, I'm going to read it again, and then we'll dive right in. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly... And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation." And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So this morning, we're on our third example, and as I broke down the outline, it's just a, a teaching tool. We have three examples to give us hope when evil seems to be winning, and I'm going to summarize briefly the first two, which comes from verses 4 and verses 5. The first example to give us hope is God's treatment of angelic sin. God's treatment of angelic sin. And I spent a couple of weeks going over this because there are some controversial parts. And as I indicated before, the, the view I espouse, I believe it's solid. I originally read it from uh, John MacArthur. He's not the only one who holds to it. But I'm not going to give all the verse references again because I spent a lot of time doing it. I'm just going to summarize really quick what's taught in verse 4. And his point is this, God took care of the angels when they sinned. He dealt with them. And some of them he cast into hell and they're imprisoned even now. And as we covered, all angels were originally created good. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. The end of day six. By Genesis 3, Satan had rebelled, and according to the Scriptures, a third of the angels followed him. We refer to them in New Testament terms as demons, but they're just fallen angels. And for the most part, the demons are roaming about. Peter warned us in 1 Peter 5, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. Job records the same thing. Satan was roaming the earth. And his demons, according to what we read in the New Testament, are everywhere. There's probably billions of them. Hundreds of millions, perhaps. Either way, they're supernatural creatures and they're roaming around destroying things. They've been wreaking havoc on humanity for thousands of years, Satan and his minions. But there is a subset of fallen angels who did something so severe, they crossed a boundary such that when they did it, God locked them up and they're not roaming the earth. Even now, they're in a pit. It's from the New Testament scriptures, sometimes referred to as the abyss. It's a pit that even the angels fear. They said, Jesus, did you come to torment us before the time? Because those angels who are in this pit of darkness, these chains of darkness, are already being tormented. And I believe their sin was that they desired to have relations with human women in Genesis 6. Now, that's not possible because they're a different created order. So they demon-possessed men to indulge their corruptive desires. 
And they transgressed boundaries. Angels, according to Jesus, were not created to marry. They weren't created to procreate. And so these angels transcended what was even allowed. Their sin was so grievous that God locked them up and they've been locked up since the days of Noah and they're still in torment even now. In fact, after Jesus died on the cross, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, he went and made proclamation to them, meaning he went to those demons who are imprisoned, who aren't on the earth, and said, I've won. It's over. It's finished. The point is, God knew how to deal with those angels. He knew how to deal with wickedness. In fact, his dealing with them was so severe that according to what we can surmise from the biblical record, no other angels ever crossed that threshold. Even Satan hadn't crossed it yet. That desire and that corruption was dealt with by God. Yes, wickedness is abounding, but God knows how to deal with it. He dealt with the angels. He'll deal with it with humans. The second example was God's acts during the time of Noah. And that was our primary teaching last week from verse 5. God didn't spare the ancient world. But he preserved Noah with seven others. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In other words, God decimated the entire earth because of the wickedness. And I'm just going to be summarizing again. I went through a lot of verses, but the men of that time, the men and women of that time were unbelievably evil. Every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. I mean, you look at America and you go, huh, I think that's the same. Noah was a righteous man. God called him a righteous man. That always wins. It's not a human evaluation. That's God's evaluation. And he lived in a time of unimaginable wickedness And God told him, prepare an ark. And it probably took 70 plus years to do that. Decades after decades went by, and at the end, when the ark was completed, God said, I haven't seen anybody righteous except Noah. In other words, in all that time, no doubt people asked Noah, they saw his life, which was different than everyone else, but no doubt they asked, what are you doing? And he testified of what God told him, that there's judgment coming, so I'm building a boat. And not a single person repented. Peter's point is that God knows how to deal with the ungodly. You think the times are bad, God will take care of it. He did it with the angels. He did it in the time of Noah. Evil will not win. And for those who are righteous, God will take care of them. God sent a worldwide flood, but he preserved Noah and his family. And that brings us, and that's just a quick summary of three weeks of teaching, that brings us to our new material today. And it's the third example to give us hope when evil seems to be winning. And it's God's actions in the days of Lot. God's actions in the days of Lot. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8, but really today we're primarily going to focus on verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. 
So this third historical example is stated in a positive and negative, just like with Noah. There were evil people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God dealt with them. And there was a righteous man named Lot, and he took care of him. He rescued him. So let's start walking into this a little bit. It's interesting that this biblical account, people, perhaps at one point, it was culturally appropriate for people to be biblically literate. I still remember in public school as a kid, teachers reading Bible passages. But those days are long past. But people still know about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very interesting. In fact, we have a word for homosexual sexual activity, sodomy, that comes from this biblical account. And if you say Sodom and Gomorrah, people may not know much, but they know that means wickedness, sexual sin. And for many people, they understand it's judgment. Again, they may not know the particulars, but they know something of what this means. But imagine the original recipients would have known this even more. No doubt there would have been Jewish believers in the churches that Peter was writing to. But Peter simplifies a lengthy historical account which is recorded in Genesis. He says this, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. Again, remember the big picture. To believers living in a wicked and evil world, don't worry. Evil's not winning even though you look around you and it seems like it is. And Peter just summarized in one little sentence a lengthy account as I mentioned. He specifically was summarizing Genesis 19 verses 23 to 29. Now there's a lot that precedes that. Some of it I'm just going to summarize. But I am going to read the actual account of the destruction which Peter was borrowing from. Meaning the historical event. Genesis 19, beginning at verse 23. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Verse 27, now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Then it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Genesis is just recording what Peter is saying with more detail, but it's clear this was an act of God. He utterly destroyed those cities. In fact, people don't even know where those cities are today. They can speculate some area of Israel near a particular corner, perhaps of the Dead Sea, but nobody knows for sure. Why? Because they were destroyed. Reducing them to ashes means they were literally wiped out. That terminology is used in secular literature to refer to a place like Vesuvius, Mount Vesuvius erupting and covering everything. Have you ever seen the aftermath of, of a volcano where there's just ash everywhere? 
Now, in no way is that saying that a volcano causes damage. It's just alluding to that reality that these towns were utterly decimated. But as Genesis makes clear, it wasn't just the physical cities, it was the people in those cities. The wicked. We read a lot of people trying to deduce, did God use a volcano? Did he use an earthquake? I don't, I don't ever do that. It says he rained down fire and brimstone. I believe he rained down fire and brimstone. That's it. The point is that everything was destroyed. Every single inhabitant. And those inhabitants, at the moment of that devastating act, didn't just lose their lives and their livelihood, they entered into an eternity of torment. Why do I say that? Because just as in the days of Noah, there were no people who followed the Lord there. I don't say that from me. I say it from the scriptures. There's a lot of different pieces and I want to try and connect the dots at the appropriate time. But remember why Peter put this here. Verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. In other words, this isn't just a story in the Bible. This is a warning to all humanity, to every ungodly civilization. This can happen to you. And if you don't repent, your destruction's assured. This particularly was crystallizing in my mind as I was starting to write this. The Bible wasn't written just for America. The Bible's written for the whole world, but I'm an American, so are most of you. We're here. So my references to our society are because this is where God has given us to minister. There's evil everywhere. But as I was reading these words and I was thinking about that and it was resonating in my heart that Sodom and Gomorrah were an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, I realized I don't pray enough for America. Because what happened long ago to Sodom and Gomorrah, God could do today. In fact, Jesus held up the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the fact that Peter used Noah and then Sodom of Gomorrah probably came because he learned the connection from Jesus. For example, in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 30, says this. Jesus was warning about judgment. He said, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, these things aren't just historical afterfacts, they're warnings to the ungodly now. This will come again. 
interesting that the passage we were studying in church this morning, Pastor Steve kept referencing Matthew because the account's there with more elaboration. It's an interesting warning that Jesus gives as he's sending out his disciples. Matthew 10, 14 to 15. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In other words, we see it from Jesus' own lips. We see it from Peter's teaching, which no doubt he learned from Jesus. Sodom and Gomorrah are a warning to the world. If you continue down this road, God will judge you. It's a warning our culture needs to hear. And they're only going to hear it from the true church and true believers. God will judge evil. Our evil culture won't win. Don't despair. Certainly it grieves our heart. We feel like Lot, which we'll cover more next week, where he was tormented in his soul because of the wickedness around him, but God will take care of all that. Now, I'm going to explain in just a moment. I think the only reason, and I'll try and back it up from scriptures, it's me logically drawing some conclusions from scripture. I think the only reason that God hasn't already judged America is because of the presence of those of us who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of the true church. The Bible makes clear there's no one righteous, no, not one, but... When we come to faith in Christ, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. It's given to our account such that we are righteous in Christ. Now, why is that significant? I'll go back to Genesis and connect some dots. First of all, before Lot ever got to Sodom, it was a wicked place. It didn't become wicked because Lot went there. It was already wicked. In fact, the Bible gives an account where Lot, who's the nephew of Abraham, they were traveling together and they got very wealthy. They had tons of livestock. They had everything such that they couldn't keep their families together. They had to separate. There just was no way for the land to sustain them. Genesis 13, 5, 7, 5 through 7. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So the Bible goes ahead and we find a few verses later, they come to a dividing point. And Abram, being a gracious man, tells his nephew, look, you pick. You go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. You pick. Genesis 13, verses 10 to 13. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved to tents as far as Sodom. So as they were standing there, Lot made a strategic economic decision. He's got herds, he's got livestock and he looks man that's good land it's watered really nicely everything about it is good i'll take that one thanks uncle i'll go here 
Verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Lot chose based on economics, but that wasn't the best choice. Because in the prosperity of that valley, wickedness was reigning. It was a prosperous area that bred wickedness. Does it sound like anything in our current world? More prosperity leads to more sin because people aren't dependent on God. Everything Pastor Steve talked about today, we don't trust God, we trust the government. We don't trust God, we trust our paychecks. We don't trust God, we trust our military. We don't know fully what was going on in their minds, but it's very clear. They were sinners against the Lord. That's what Genesis says. They were sinners against the Lord. And Romans 1, 18 and 19 probably described them. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. There is no one who is without excuse. The creation, the general revelation of God in His creation points to a creator and yet people rebel against Him. That happens now, it was happening then. And the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. You can almost picture that's the first part of the movie. Lot's moving in. Hey, this is great. It's going to be good for me. But God was not overlooking that. That's Genesis 13. We get to Genesis 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And their sin is exceedingly grave. Nothing that was going on in that valley in the Jordan escaped God's notice, just like nothing going on today is escaping the Lord's notice. And the culmination of this was with when God, I believe the pre-incarnate Christ, quite often there's a reference to angels of the Lord, but there's also reference to the angel of the Lord, which I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. But we read in Genesis 18 at the beginning of the verse this. Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if I now have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the trees. And I will bring a priest of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go since you have visited your sermon. And they said, so do as you have said. In other words, at that point, he wasn't using Lord in the sense of the eternal God. He just saw three men come and in a culture of hospitality, in an expression of hospitality, he was running to meet their needs. And this is the account where the angel says, Sarah's going to have a baby, and Sarah laughed. And then the angel, who's the Lord, says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah's like, ah, I didn't laugh. We all revert to toddler form when we're caught. No, it wasn't me. But after promising Abraham a child through Sarah, the Lord and the two other angels turned to the next order of business. Genesis 18, 16 to 20 says this, Then the men rose up from there, 
and looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what was spoken about him. Verse 20, which I already read, now we have the context. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. So again, Peter in verse 6 just throws a sentence out. But when we see the context, that wasn't a flippant offhand reaction by the Lord. It was a calculated decision based on persistent evil. These people, through their lives, were shaking their fist at God. We're going to see more next week when we cover verses 7 and 8. But these were wicked men, no doubt women as well. Sexual immorality was rampant. There's some troubling things that Lot does, and we're going to talk about the fact that God calls him a righteous man in the Scriptures because Lot's reaction on a couple of these things will make us scratch our head. But the reality is... God was watching and had seen and had taken notice. And as the evil built, it became to the point where it was too far. Just like certain angels crossed a line, Sodom and Gomorrah crossed the line. And here's where we connect it again and why I think the church is the only reason God hasn't Wiped out America. And again, it's also why I say just as in the days of Noah, there were no righteous people. Why do I say that? Because of the account that follows. Now, it would be longer than I want to read right now. But I think you're probably familiar with it. Actually, I changed my mind. I'm going to read it. Genesis 18. If you pull up your... Bible. I said I wasn't going to read it for time's sake, but now I look at my watch and I do have time. Let me get my reference again. It is going to be 22 to 33. So, Genesis 18, 22 to 33. We read this. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, two of the angels, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? And again, this is where I think you'll see the connection with our modern day. But Abraham was basically saying to God, It doesn't seem like your character. Would you really destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? And so he says, well, if there's 50 righteous people in these cities, and these were likely large cities in that whole valley, suppose there are 50. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing. 
to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I've ventured to speak to the Lord, although I'm but dust and ashes. He could tell he's stepping over some lines here. But he says, Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he, God, said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he, Abraham, said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are founding there. We're guessing now that Abraham knows something about Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> He's bringing the number lower and lower. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he, Abraham, verse 31, now behold, and he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. That's intense negotiation. You're negotiating with God, but it comes from a good place. In fact, we'll see, I think, next week, and again, it's a deduction, but Peter calls Lot righteous, and the account recorded of him, some of his decisions don't seem righteous. But it's likely that Abraham had in mind his nephew as he's negotiating with God. But here's why I say, just like in the days of Noah, when Noah went in the ark and God looked and said, there's not anybody else besides Noah, why I think that's exactly the same as in the account of Lot, is because God said, if there are ten righteous, I won't destroy it. What happened to the cities? They're all destroyed. There weren't even ten righteous people. So here's my surmise and my connection. I believe that the presence of us as true believers indwelt by the righteousness of the Lord may be the only reason why God hasn't unleashed that type of judgment on multiple cultures around the earth. Because even in the midst of those wickedness, He has His righteous people that He has planted there to be a witness. It's a weighty responsibility as God has placed on our shoulders and it's weightier now because the culture has revealed itself. America of my childhood looked very different than the American of my adulthood. Most of you can agree. And what we see now is that the culture around us is exceedingly wicked against the Lord. I 
Again, one of the most offensive things to me, but it's, it's not offensive to me, it's just it's such a picture of satanic work in the hearts of sinners is the rainbow flag. Because God gave the rainbow as a sign that I won't judge you in the same way. And it's as though with that rainbow flag, Satan is saying, you surely will not die. It's a perversion. It's a twisting of God's promises. But the accounts of Scripture make it clear God will keep His promises. And just as He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, one day He'll judge the wicked. They're an example. An example that America doesn't want to see. My point is that Abraham's dialogue with God suggests that he will forestall judgment if there's even a few righteous in the midst. And for all of the problems of America and Europe and Africa and everywhere else in the world, God has a remnant. We believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture at Lakeside, and I don't want to go into it, but I remember in my early days of being saved, hearing the book of Revelation talked by David Jeremiah on the evening services in our churches, and one of the things he kept stressing is the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit and the people of God is removed at the rapture. And then all bets are off. And it literally is devastating judgment unleashed upon the earth. That's what's recorded in the book of Revelation. Peter's ultimate point, I think, is that we, whatever era we live in as a culture, need to be aware that judgment will be coming. God does not tolerate sin indefinitely. At some point, the outcry against America may become too great and God may destroy parts of America. And next week, we're going to see the rescue part. Again, as far as we can tell, the only righteous person in that entire area was perhaps Lot. I'll talk about it in more detail. Only Lot reached out to extended family and they ignored him. They thought he was joking. So Lot had two daughters that weren't married and his wife and himself. And for whatever reason, he had to be dragged out of there by the angels. But those are the only people that left and his wife looked back, she's gone. So it was Lot and two daughters. And biblically, we're not, it didn't appear that the two daughters were righteous because the first thing they did was got their dad drunk and committed incest so they would have children. So it could be very well be that there was just one. But even for that one, for all the difficulties, for being surrounded by evil, at one point with them beating down the door to his home, at another point judgment is coming and he doesn't even want to leave, God took care and rescued him. God knows how to save his children. So from our standpoint, and the takeaway today is this. As evil is around us, be thankful that God's not judging it like he did Sodom and Gomorrah because it gives us more time to witness. 
gives us more time to be a light. It gives us more time to be a testimony. But even as Pastor Steve was saying this morning, we've got to have credibility. Our lives need to be different than the world around us. It's not some way of legalism where we adopt a set of rules. It's just a matter of God indwelling us has transformed us. And we should be people marked by love and caring and kindness, not anger and vitriol. Don't ever get to the point, or try not to get to the point, where you look at all the evil around us and you say, get him, God. We need to be like Jesus and look upon them with compassion and pray for their salvation and pray that God would give us opportunities to reach them with the gospel. Because Peter's point is clear. Sodom and Gomorrah are a lesson. They are a warning to the ungodly. God will judge sin. So next week we'll see more about Lot's rescue. But for now, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, we have certain stories that we're familiar with. Sodom and Gomorrah is one of them. And Lord, I know I'm guilty. I can see this and I go, I, I, I know what happened. And it doesn't touch my heart. Lord, forgive me for that coldness. Lord, help me and help all my brothers and sisters remember that in an evil world, we are your witnesses. Lord, thank you for stalling your judgment, for not unleashing fire and brimstone that sends our unsaved family members and friends immediately into an eternity without you. Lord, help it put in us a sense of urgency to proclaim the truth to the world that desperately needs it. And Lord, help it remind us to avoid wickedness. The New Testament is filled with warnings about licentious behavior, immoral behavior. Lord, help us be people that heed those warnings. And Lord, we pray that as we study and reflect upon these words, you will give us hope. Lord, we're coming into an election year and we don't know the outcome, but for most of us, we get frustrated. Not every election goes our way. Lord, help us always see the big picture. No one's slipping anything past you. No one's fooling you. No one's getting away with it. One day, you will bring it all to account. And the exceeding wickedness around us and all the sin we see in people against you will be dealt with perfectly and justly. Lord, we love you. We can't believe that you save sinners like us, but we thank you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.